Hey, everybody, this is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is on families and COVID-19. What's going on in the household? Folks parenting at home, kids at home, learning at home, and it's overwhelming. The impact of the virus on gender roles within the family. Just has naturally, unfortunately, driven women out of the workplace. We dig in. Then he makes the argument that America is finally ready to deal with this issue of race. God wants justice. Our job is to meet God's demand for justice with the person who comes closest to that. Author Michael Eric Dyson explains why the long wait could be over. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the impact of COVID-19 on American families. More than 40% of parents living with children under age 19 reported a loss of a job or work hours due to the pandemic. And gender roles in homes have been deeply impacted with more and more women staying home to provide care and education for kids. So what is the long-term impact? Uh, With me to discuss this Flashpoint is Marnie Puente. She's a marketing and communication professional and mother of two. She's also a Vision 2020 delegate who focuses on issues of family and gender. We have Jeffrey Steiner, Executive Director of the Dad's Resource Center. And finally, we have Dr. George James, a marriage and family therapist. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you, Cherry. Thanks for having me. I want to start with you, Dr. James. The pandemic has turned families upside down. What has been, from your perspective, the emotional impact at home? No, I think that it has turned everyone upside down in lots of ways. And what I've seen clinically is just the layered effect, right? Like, so you have COVID-19 and the fear of getting COVID, or maybe someone has gotten it or you lost someone. And we've had, you know, increased racial injustice or awareness of, of racial injustice. We've got folks parenting at home, kids at home, learning at home. It's not just one, it's all the things. And it's overwhelming, increasing anxiety and depression, folks not knowing what to do or how to handle it. But people are resourceful and creative. And so they've been able to manage, but it's been a lot. A lot for real. And I want to go to you, Marnie. Women and mothers certainly have felt the shift. Um, According to recent numbers that I saw, women make up about 39% of global employment, but 54 plus percent of overall job losses. Can you explain Mm -hmm. what it is? Yeah, and I read recently, I think as of September, there were four times as many women that left uh, the job market than men. And it was a 64.5 billion uh, loss in terms of revenue and economic activity. So that's pretty significant. I have to say in my own position, I, I am fortunate because I can afford daycare. But my biggest concern is, and because my husband and I both work full time, my biggest concern is those women that cannot or don't have a job where they can work from home. These, you know, core single mothers, I, I don't know how they're doing it. 
I think it just has naturally, unfortunately, driven women out of the workplace because you can't be having to go to a physical location and also be at home with your children. And when you have young children, like I do, uh, I have a a first grader who requires, you know, he's not 100% self-sufficient. My four-year-old son has autism. And so he needs a lot of support. So I'm a special needs mom. And if it's not me or my husband, we have to have someone there with them full time. And so it has put a lot of stress on us. And we're lucky enough to even be able to get some help. I mean, these stats don't surprise me. I think my biggest fear is, you know, hopefully we can get back to a place where we can, you know, make up for for lost time, which is unfortunately, I think what's happening right now. And so talk to you, Jeff. I mean, has there been an impact on dads? Have they stepped up? Because we know women have been had had to suffer the brunt of it just because of traditional roles, not just in America, but worldwide. Obviously, no one wants to try to be in a position where they have to do it by themselves. I can say for our family, there are three major impacts that we're feeling. Number one is educationally. And this is something all parents are just absolutely tortured by, whether they're going to have their children attend school, whether they're going to be safe in that environment, whether they're going to have to choose to go into a hybrid or a full remote, um, that's been a very difficult position for every parent, and it has been for our family. Another area is the work-life balance. Talking about our family, I normally work out of home. Mom works about a half hour away, so in the morning she leaves to work, the girls get in the bus, I work all day, they get home, I'm Mr. Dad, Mom, Dad, when they get home, you know. Now, our school just, our high school just had to go full remote this week, so in our house, Mom is now working 90% at home in the basement. I'm here in the living room. Our youngest is at the dining room table working. Our oldest is downstairs with mom working. You know, so the whole work-life experience is intermingled now. Mm -hmm. And that's for the people who are fortunate enough to be in stable work positions. There are a lot of people out there who've lost jobs. And that's really significant. And then the final thing, which really cuts deep to people, is the extended family. Because we all have grandparents. Everyone's been absolutely tortured. Do we go visit our grandparents? And and that's been painful. And that's really hurt people in the heart. Our Thanksgiving, mom's birthday is the day before. We didn't do Thanksgiving dinner like we normally do with her parents. We went out for ice cream Wednesday night in 40 degree winter at a picnic table outside of a restaurant, you know, because those are the things we have to do in 2020 with COVID. A lot of major significant impacts on families as a whole. Dr. James, I mean, how do you cope? As parents, you're dealing with it, your own mental stability in some ways. You're having to make all these decisions, but then your kids are also struggling too. Life as they knew it isn't the same. How do you balance? Yeah, I've seen a lot of my clients and a lot of people recognize how valuable teachers are, how valuable schools mm-hmm. and that environment. And we don't want to say it, but like, sometimes having that break, right, is is essential, right? And then recognizing for a lot of families from March, especially on the East Coast, they have not had that break. They, they are all day, every day. And so to cope, a lot of people have been trying to figure out what to do. I mean, I've seen families become more creative, more walks, more hikes, more things that they can do together, more games at home. But then there's some families that they don't have access or that opportunity and so it's, it, and they don't have, as was mentioned uh, by Jeff, they don't have that the community, that village, the family. And so a lot of people have been either trying to use whatever resources they can, online resources, 
therapy, recognizing that their mental health is important. But once again, it is overwhelming. It's a lot. And a lot of it is just being, most of it is being able to say, how can we make it through this day? How can we make it through this week? How can we make it through this month? And if we can take it in those, those small measures, then maybe we can figure out the next the next version and go from there. I've read that parents who have been struggling with kids, you know, not sleeping in their bed, for example, have said, you know what, we're going to just, it's the COVID-19. <laughs> this is not the battle we're going to have right now. Your thoughts on, on not dealing with some of those issues because yeah. of added stress. You pick your battles, right? Normally. Yeah. And I think, especially during this time, and it just makes sense. Like sometimes your kids just, they're restless just like you are. They are bored or overwhelmed just like you are. They're anxious and depressed just like you are. And so we all deal with that in different ways. And so having structure is important. Having routine is important. But also being flexible is extremely important during this time. And if we can do that, we actually model that to our children and allows them to say like, all right, this is 2020. That's just what it's going to be. This is 2020 is an understatement, Dr. Jackson. <laughs> so, Marnie, uh, you know, this this year we celebrated 100 years since women got the right to vote. And mm -hmm. think about it. Is it a backslide in some regards or or is there an upside here that we're missing? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, optimistic person by nature. So I always like to absolutely, you know, I'm concerned about women in the workplace and some of the regression, regression we've seen, you know, and some of the statistics that are out there. But I mean, the reality is, knock on wood, we'll have a vaccine in the near future. We, there's a lot of, I think, good things that are, are to come. And, and, and even in my own personal experience, because my husband would admit it, I tend to do the lion's share of the work with the kids. You know, we both have demanding jobs, but I think it's been really great for him uh, because he's been able to bond with them. We've gotten a lot more family time, honestly, even growing an appreciation for everything. <laughs> that I do. So I do think there is an upside to it. And it's been really great, I think, for the kids, because we do get in this mode of being busy, working, traveling. And it has, I think, on the positive side, definitely forced us all to slow down significantly, think about what's really important in terms of priorities, and really, really put family first. And I do think with women, I, there's definitely the downside, I am concerned, but I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll get back there. I think this has been a setback. But I do think, you know, we're going to get back there and we'll all be stronger for it, too. Do you think this will put the focus back on childcare? Because yeah. a number of discussions about the importance of quality, affordable childcare, because without that, yes. a lot of centers closed down during the pandemic. I think we parents have so much more appreciation than we did before for childcare. And I will tell you again, as a special needs mom, because this is something I'm, I'm a strong advocate for, the resources that are provided, structure that they get in the school, the social, and, and not just, you know, my son who has autism, but my neurotypical child too, the, the supports that the schools are able to provide, I think I've taken for granted, right? And I think many of us had, and, and now that we're getting this experience of being, you know, working full time, and then also being teachers and in my case, counselors and occupational therapists. I mean, I'm getting to do all of that. I have so much appreciation for the supports and, and for what schools do provide. And I have to say too, I have so much appreciation for teachers and how they've pivoted as they have. For many of them, this is, this is not an ideal environment and they've made the best of it. At least in my experience, I've had nothing but great outreach from the teachers and just trying to make the best of what is just a really tough and, and probably not a sustainable situation in the long term. Jeff, I want to talk to you about parents that don't live together. 
parents that live separately, how, I mean, you, you work at a dad's resource center, a lot of dads outside of, of the home doing co-parenting. What's that like during the pandemic? Uh, in those types of situations, the level of success is almost always dependent on the extent to which both parents are fully committed to the best interests of their children, primarily first and foremost. And so if you have that type of relationship, I think in this type of situation, they understand it and really focus on that. And so, you know, up their game, so to speak. But for those folks who are in different situations where it's more contentious, um, no doubt it's been a little more challenging in this circumstance. And whether it's fathers primarily, but even mothers who are in situations where they're not the primary custodian of the children, those services that are available to help facilitate that have come to almost a complete stop. Uh, my wife, uh, the girl's mom, she works in the human services field and they've spent the bulk of their time over the last six months just trying to figure out how to start to function in a COVID environment. A lot of the things that fathers or again, a non-custodial mother needs to do to be able to be in the lives of their children through the court system or the service providers that facilitate visits have been put on hold during this period. Uh, now we've helped out in certain situations. We've been flexible and filled in some of the gaps with some of the fathers who've come to us, uh, but it most certainly has been challenging uh, even more so uh, for the families who are in those circumstances over the last well, going on eight months now. How does that impact families? You know, when you have this rhythm, but then because of the pandemic, uh, it could break that rhythm and, and cause a rift or, or, you know, separation. The people who are most hurt by that are children. Mothers and fathers give different but equally important things to their children when they don't have that. In addition to the tension during what Dr. James correctly noted is a highly time frame where people are very disoriented and, and the world seems so less stable. Uh, that just further exasperates those uh, situations for children. So again, it, it behooves parents to really rise to the occasion right now. And then anyone who is associated, affiliated with, or working with parents who are struggling with this to be able to help them fill in the gaps and to work with them and do what they can on behalf of the children. Because again, that's the number one concern. Any advice about that, uh, Dr. James, on this issue, you know, separation, I mean, it has caused some family separation, especially if you're dealing with families that have people who are highly susceptible to the virus. Sometimes families had to separate in order to keep people safe. What I actually was in a, a seminar earlier today and what one parent said to her, her children was that like, you're not in trouble, right? It's more, right, you, you didn't do anything wrong, but we have to figure out, you know, we have to do what's best for everyone. And I think that's the message, right? Is being able to let your children know that like, in order to take care of grandparents or family members, we might have to stay away from them for a while. We might have to be creative. We might have to figure out other ways to stay connected. One of the things I have young children, I have a 10 and seven year old, you know, one of the things that we've done is that they've written letters and like their little friends and family members, they love it. So it's being able to figure out what are other ways to stay connected that might be different, but also reinforcing to your child and children that it's not that they're doing something wrong. It's something that we all have to do together. We get ready to wrap up. I, I want to talk about, I mean, and, and Marty, you started to talk about the upsides of this. We look to the future. What are some things you think families will bring in uh, to their family structure that we didn't have 
but they'll bring it in because of, of the pandemic. I think what we've learned from this is to slow down. <laughs> and, you know, and even corporations, the one um, that I work for included, you know, is travel always necessary when we thought it was? Being able to shut down at the end of the day. I mean, there's there are some good things that are coming out of this, I think. And also the importance of our own you know, I say taking oxygen, you know, I, I need my oxygen, right? That time for myself. And again, as a special needs mom, I focus on this a lot, whether it's getting some time to work out or reading a book or whatever, but for my kids too, to not all about work. And, and I think that this has opened up really to where we will do a better job, I hope. And I hope this sticks of prioritizing what's truly important in life. Health is number one. And so I think the good that's going to come out of this and what we'll take away is to kind of think, is that really necessary? You know, do I really need to go on that trip or should I stay home and, and spend time with my kids instead? So really being much more, really kind of setting our priorities straight in terms of what matters most in our lives. COVID-19 will do that. And I know Jeff, yeah, conference coming up. The next Tuesday, the 8th and Tuesday, the 15th, the Symposium Organizing Committee uh, in support of the Pennsylvania Greater Father Family Involvement Campaign is holding its annual conference virtually. Uh, and that's a, a fatherhood advocate organization, uh, people speaking to fatherhood and what we need to do to be able to support fathers. Uh, if anyone would be interested in registering, uh, you can go to our website, uh, Dad's Resource Center, uh, dadsrc.org. And we have a link to be able to register for the conference uh, on the front page of our website. Any final words, you all, advice to families, mothers, fathers, uh, as we try to get through this holiday season and final words of advice. One of the things I would say is that what I've realized in my life and in my client's life is that sometimes as parents uh, and families, we limited ourselves and we realized like, oh, we can do that. We can play more games. We can be more involved in homework. We can do more with the meal plan. Like there's more that we can do and to embrace that and to embrace those stories and those times because there will be a point where we'll look back and we'll say like, oh man, I, I maybe missed that. And not the COVID part, but I missed the family connection part. So embrace it. Embrace it. Final word, Marnie? Yeah, I would just say, again, I'm, I'm very lucky, right? Because my company has set up so many incredible support in place. I mean, I could take a sabbatical with up to 20% pay if I need to. And the work-life flexibility, I actually think that exists for more people than they may think. Go to your employer, especially if they're worth continuing to work for <laughs> and they want to hold on to you as an employee, they're going to help you try to make it work. You know, I mean, these are unprecedented times. And so they have to also be flexible and think differently. So there are resources available and it can be through your own employment. So don't be afraid to ask for help and reach out to your community, but not being afraid to ask for help. Thank you so much to Marnie Puente, Jeff Steiner, and to Dr. George James for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you, Cherry. It's our pleasure. Thank you very much. Next up, is America finally ready for a reckoning on race? We got to leverage this moment. Author Michael Eric Dyson's new book, why he says the answer is yes. We'll be right back. 
Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The Newsmaker of the Week is author of the groundbreaking book, Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. The issue of race has divided this country since 1619. And Michael Eric Dyson puts the recent racial unrest, killing of George Floyd, the pandemic, and so much more in historical context through a series of letters to the many victims of racially charged violence. So Michael Eric Dyson, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on your book. Thank you so very much. I appreciate that. So it's written as a series of letters uh, to some of the Black victims of unlawful police and racially charged violence. And you lay this out as a cycle of shooting, outrage, placation, and no change. Yet you seem to have hope that this time things will be different. Why? Because I have to have hope. Because the opposite of hope is that despair that leads you into a kind of pit of nothingness. And then you get stultified, you get stymied, you get paralyzed, and ain't nothing going to happen no way. So as a person of faith, as a person of spirit, understanding the relationship between our will Uh, our volition and the world in which we can shape the outcome by our agreement with the good forces of the universe, not to just be too philosophical, means that we got to stay on our job, stay on the case, and will ourselves into a different reality. The great thinker Howard Thurman said, never reduce your dreams to the event you're confronting now. He said, our slave foreparents looked at long rolls of cotton, the rawhide whip of the overseer, and they kept going. They imagined and conjured a different future. If they could imagine a different future that they could scarcely figure out what it would be, we are obligated to do the same thing. So that's why I nurture that hope in my bosom. What makes this time a little bit different? A syndemic, a synergy and a convergence of pandemics. And so we got the global pandemic that is the virus that's out here besieging, you know, bodies all over the world, millions and more people dead. And then on the other hand, we got the racial pandemic. We see an uptick in the numbers of black people who are dying at the hands of the police. And I think we were at home watching our screens. We were more sensitive. Right. And so now we're at home watching our screens and the George Floyd event happens. My God, the news of the day is focused on what we see. And what we see, we're more likely to see it because we ain't at work being distracted by, you know, doing stuff we'd ordinarily be doing. We're at home going, can you believe this? And then because the pandemic had made some people who were heretofore insensitive to black people a bit more sensitive. Hey, black people and brown people are suffering a little bit more from this disease. And then when we see the George Floyd situation go down, we go, wait, they're already dealing with the pandemic and y'all can't give up killing people? during the friggin' pandemic and white people were like, Jiminy Cricket, what's going on? They've been telling the truth all along. Look at the guy. The poor guy is begging for his mother on the street corner with the knee of Derek Chauvin dug deeply into his neck. He kept saying, I can't breathe. People said, wait a minute, we've seen this, this film before. Didn't Eric Garner 
say I can't breathe, and I think it snapped something, and it's like, oh, they ain't going to never listen. If they didn't listen to George Floyd, and they knew that Eric Garner had already begged for his life, and the policeman is like looking at the camera and doesn't care, all bets are off. So I think all that stuff came together, and uh, it made this time different. I mean, all over the world, George Floyd's name is known globally as a result of what happened there. It's a tragedy that it had to occur that way, and that his martyrdom elevated him uh, to a universal and global level where so many people around the globe understand the issue of police brutality and systemic racism because of how he was treated. And I got to ask you, because I covered the racial unrest that was the reaction, mm -hmm. the, the looting. We had protests, of course, which are separate from the looting here in Philadelphia. But you, you talk about this in historical context and how, uh, in, one, in one regard, when white people loot, it's viewed one way. But when Black people loot, it's viewed a different way. Can you talk about that, put it in context now, and will the reaction that happened um, in response to George Floyd's shooting um, sort of distract us, you know, and from getting the reckoning that your book is all about? Right, and that's a great question. For the most part, when white folk loot, it ain't called looting. And it, do it doesn't get demonized. Think about what happened in Hurricane Katrina. White folk were looking for food, trying to survive. Black folk, you're looting. Dude, there's a, hur there's a tornado, there's a you know, hurricane it's ripped up our community. It's killed a lot of people. We have been abandoned looking for food and you're calling that looting? Wow, they get heroized, we get demonized. And so when it, we talk about looting, who's been more looted than black people? You looted us from Africa. You brought us here and looted us. You raped our women. You looted our culture. Everything we invented, you done stole, you done looted. That's what appropriation is, a nice way of saying looting. So you took our blues, you took the R&B stuff, you took our style. As, as um, the, the cultural critic uh, Greg Tate says, you want everything but the, but the burden, everything but the pain, right? That new commercial from Dr. Dre and Dre Beats. You know, you love black culture, but do you love us? And so looting, metaphorically, symbolically, and literally, has been the predicate of America. I heard about this case. Tell me if you heard about this. Up in the Northeast, uh, in New England, you know, several white men were got together and they were, you know, in their mind doing something righteous, but they were impersonating Native American peoples. Uh, they stole into warehouses and took tea and poured it into the river. Oh, it was called the Boston Tea Party. Oh, okay, that's not like some looting to me. You impersonate Native American people. You're stealing stuff that don't belong to you, it, it, all because you say you're being mistreated. Oh, really? You're, you're, you're looting because you're mistreated. Sound familiar? That's what we've been doing. So they call it the Washington, they call it the Boston Tea Party. They call it the beginning of the nation. They called it, you know, uh, uh, refusal to be complicit with injustice. And we just call thugs. And yeah. so, yeah, when we look at it, and for the most part, black people ain't looting. You know, some of the people who were Antifa and other left-wing groups, and God bless them for hanging out there with us, um, a lot of black people were going, look, we're going to get blamed for this, so please cut that out. Cut the yeah. shenanigans, because yeah. we're going to be the ones who are blamed. So your white privilege is even going to uh, prevent you from being held to account in the same way that we are. It's an insurance policy, right? And on the other hand, 
I mean, are you really complaining about the looting of buildings, the killing of a building? Now, I ain't, I ain't trying to justify it because if you got that business and your business is gone, that's hurtful. That's painful. It makes a huge difference. But at the end of the day, the loss of life, the looting of the wherewithal of black culture and possibility and black bodies. Martin Luther King Jr. said riots are the language of the unheard. And we have not been heard many people in those arenas and those areas and those neighborhoods. And so let's not focus on the looting that black people and other allies do at that moment. Let's focus on why they feel it necessary to express themselves in that language. And what are we doing in the broader culture to prevent the flourishing of those communities such that they feel the only thing they can do is express themselves in looting. And this has created a perfect storm, I think, in America. I mean, you had the pandemic, you had the racial unrest, and then you had Black voters show up in city after city after city, mm -hmm. uh, providing uh, the critical support for the Biden-Harris administration. How does the mm -hmm. Black community take this moment and the political capital that was built to push through the agenda that will finally break this pattern that we, we just have been talking about? Right. Well, it's a good thing. I mean, Black people show up, Black women in particular. We need to have our political investment rewarded. And Joe Biden, has any other president done this? You hook me up, you have my back, I got yours. I ain't heard no other president. I ain't heard Obama say that. Yeah. I ain't heard Kennedy say that. I ain't even heard LBJ say that, even though LBJ did some great stuff. Here's a, a white man saying, I owe you. I know what you did for me, Jim Clyburn. He's like Moses splitting the Red Sea and black women show up like, like the women of Jesus at the cross. Like where the men at? I don't know, but we here and we're going to carry the message. And he chose a black woman to be vice president. What does that mean? He is setting her up to be the first president who's female of the United States of America. Look at what the man is doing. Plus we got to leverage this moment into criminal justice reform, into public education access for the most needy and vulnerable, into having this coronavirus under control and the disproportionate impact on Black and Latinx communities uh, paid attention to. Not only the healthcare, but the economic disparities, the ownership of homes, the way in which the housing bus, uh, bubble burst and bled off the greatest amount of Black wealth in history. All that stuff is real, and it's time to put it on the agenda, and Black employment as well. Uh, but I think we have a president and a vice president who are open to do that. And that's the beautiful thing. The, the, the reason we voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is because we could push him. Ain't no pushing Donald Trump. I don't give a darn what you saying. All your social justice activism, right, which is necessary and critical and must keep going forward, wasn't able to move the needle with him, but it can potentially move it with, with uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So I think that's a good thing. And that's the, the power of leveraging our vote. And my last question with to you, sir, is what do you hope that people take from long time coming? Well, I want them to feel the pain, the trauma, the hurt, the heartbreak, the humanity, the lunacy of killing black people, the idiocy of assaulting our fellow citizens who are black, the, the horror of repudiating our religious belief. We claim to be Christians and evangelicals. No, you ain't. You worship in your color. You worship in your whiteness. God wants justice. Our job is to meet 
God's demand for justice with the person who comes closest to that. So there could be multiple people at any given time that God could choose. So look at your theology and how complicated it is and contradictory. Oh, God chose uh, Biden, but didn't choose Trump. God chose Trump, but not Biden. What, God took a four-year break and is out of duty, off duty? Come on. So I think God wants justice and wants freedom and equality for the masses of people. And we got to figure out the person that comes closest to that. That's our job. God's job is to articulate the principle. Our job is to select the person. Well, said like a true Baptist preacher, Michael Eric Dyson will be here in Philadelphia on December 9th at 6 p.m. at the Literary Cafe. We'll provide all the details at kywnewsradio.com slash flashpoint. Professor Dyson, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, he's produced a docu-series that shows the impact of gun violence. I want them to be moved by what they see, by what they're hearing. South Philadelphia activist discusses the true weight of death. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work in caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org, that's PatriotHomeCare.org, or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community. Philadelphia has seen a sharp uptick in homicides. And so a local activist is unmasking the trauma of gun violence, plaguing black communities through a new docu-series titled Weight of Death. Let's welcome Patriot Home Care Changemaker, executive producer Anton Moore. First of all, congratulations on the launch. Well done. Thank you. So this docu-series, episode one launched. It's a story of 23-year-old Dominique Oglesby. Give a quick summary for folks who've never heard of her. Dominique Oglesby was a 23-year-old young lady from Philadelphia that attended Penn State. She was in an altercation at a bar on 52nd Street where she was picking up her food. A young lady could sing her behind all, talented young lady. Two weeks you know, later, she was set to graduate from Penn State and she was killed. Her father was shot, her grandfather was shot, and she was shot as well, but she didn't make it. And her story, I, I won't give it all away because the way you tell the story in episode one, it had me in tears. Her mother telling the story of her daughter's loss, but you dig in deep on this issue of gun violence, why? You dig in deep because you want people to realize the destruction that is being done in our community through, through gun violence. You know, all these things that are taking place, there are real faces and real families that are being destroyed. We was able to hear Danielle talk about her daughter. It was like, oh my God, like this woman is really going through, because look at it. You hear about it on the news, it flashed on the news, then it go off. You never really hear the story, you know what I mean? And we want to tell those stories. Yeah. And you are an activist, um, ward leader, uh, community leader. You are the founder and you run an organization called Unity and Community. You were giving out food today yeah. uh, and you do a lot of stuff. What Talk about how gun violence has racked your neighborhood 
uh, your your community and and has ripple effects throughout the city. Gun violence has just ripped up our community. You know, I have young guys who I've worked with personally try to help change their lives, you know, do different things. And some of them were, were murdered. You know what I mean? And, and I deal with that trauma, you know, on a daily basis. My co-producers, Matt Cannon and Jamie, we, we go through that and we talk about that on a daily basis. And it's frustrating because, you know, just last night I was talking to a family who needed help burying their brother-in-law who was killed in Philadelphia. So I get these phone calls day in and day out. It's tough, Sherry. When I leave here, we're going to, you know, produce episode three of the docu-series and get an interview with a mother who lost her son. Well, her son was killed right in front of her face. She tried to plead with the killer, but the killer ended up killing her son. Yeah. Philadelphia has seen more homicides over 450 at this point than we have seen in many, many years. Um, and, and it just makes your docu-series even more timely. What are you hoping that people take from it? More than anything, I want them to realize. I want them to understand. I want them to be educated. I want them to be moved by what they see, by what they're hearing. Actually, I was at a program where um, these young guys have been arrested for gun violence in, in the city. And I was showing them the film, bought them something to eat. And the one young guy was watching the film. And I noticed he had his mask up to his eyes. And I'm like, why is his mask up, his, up to his eyes? And when I looked deeper, we turned on the lights. He had tears coming down the face. And he let his mask down. All these tears fell out. And he was like, that's deep, man. That's deep. And it hit him. You know what I mean? And it hit him. And I hope that it hit him to the core that he understands that the destruction of gun violence is not good. It's hurting families and it's destroying them at an alarming rate. And we must, we must, because accountability must start with us first. You know, we could point the fingers. Oh, this, this and that. Nah, if I bring a son in this world, I have, a, I have an obligation to raise that young man. I have an obligation to show him the right way. We have too many fathers not in the household. We have too many mothers who are making the wrong choices. We have to own this, Sherry. And I got to say to you, as someone who's covered gun violence, one of the things that I really thought was well done was your discussion of survivors. And you actually talked about the trauma because it, it's not just the person shot, like, you know, who died. It's like the ripple effect is huge. The neighborhood, you know, parents living in fear, um, young kids seeing this day in and day out that their loved ones are murdered. Eventually, it's going to take a toll on them. Some kids actually think that this is the norm, but it takes, you know, activists like myself and other people to keep pressing. No, this is not the norm. This is wrong. That's why we always need people to march. We always need people out there advocating day in and day out that this is not the norm and this must stop. Yeah, you got an appearance by Meek Mill. Congratulations mm -hmm. on that. He has a song in here. Just compelling interviews. Why is this so personal to you? It's personal because I, I'm, I'm on the ground. I understand what's going on. I've looked young men in the eyes. I've seen young men cry. I've walked into, you know, funeral homes with parents. I've helped parents, you know, bury their kids. I see this. I've helped young men turn their lives around. This idea came about when me and my uh, co-producer, Matt, was sitting on the step and we were doing PSAs about young, young kids losing, you know, their parents to gun violence. And I said to Matt, you know what? I want to dig deeper in this. I want to tell these stories. I want people to understand and feel the weight of death that it has on our community. So it's a docu-series and, and, you know, installment one is out. When will we see installment two? Installment two is coming in about two or three weeks. Can't reveal it too much. Like I said, it's a docu-series because 
we're going to hammer this. We know that kids live on social media and we need to go to the place where they live at and where they breathe at. Yeah, so much is involved. Where can people find it, Anton? Theweightofdeath.com or you can just type in The Weight of Death episode one on YouTube and you can catch it there. Y'all check it out, Weight of Death. Episode one is out. Congratulations to you and your entire team. Anton Moore, executive producer and founder of Unity in the Community. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap up the show with a quote, here's one from South Africa's Desmond Tutu. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.